Verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among you I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit to you, God, and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. May God bless the reading of his word. So the scripture reading is different from the reading listed in the bulletin and the reading that forms the basis of the sermon because the scripture reading provides the background, provides the occasion for the text that we'll be looking at in 1 Timothy. Paul writes in verse uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 25, Paul writes, Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. And he looks into their intermediate future and continues in verse 29. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, and they will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Paul stops in his journeys. He doesn't want to take time out in Acts 20 to go visit the city of Ephesus, so he calls the elders to him. And he alerts them to one thing and warns them about another. He alerts them that they'll never see him again. He'll never go visit them again. And yet he warns them that other teachers will come into their midst. False teachers. 
and lead the church astray. And not only lead the church astray, but lead some of its leaders astray. Not only false teachers from outside, but false teachers will arise from inside, influenced by the outsiders. And really, First Timothy reflects on all of this. Paul writes basically the, the one coherent thread throughout the whole letter that pulls it all together is, Paul addresses the question of how to protect the church of God. Because Timothy is in Ephesus, where Paul was, where Paul had been. Paul knew that there were false teachers were going to come. He sends Timothy there. Paul can't go. He sends Timothy to the city of Ephesus to smooth things out, to straighten things out. So basically, the entire book is about protecting the church of God. How do we protect the church of God? What can protect the church of God? Now, as it happens, you know, you all, most of you would know that Irene and I are also going through a transition soon. We're going to be moving down to Florida, retiring and moving down to Florida as Terry prayed. Uh, one of the things that is foremost in our mind is how we're going to find a church or where we're going to go to church. So we've been just keeping an eye on things and looking around a little bit and about a month ago, in a church that we've already visited once or twice before, a youth pastor was, who had served there was sentenced to 45 years in federal prison for inappropriate relationships. And, and 45 years in federal prison sounds like a lot, except he was eligible for 160 years, and the judge thought that was too much. How do you protect the church from trouble inside? It doesn't have to be from pastoral staff. It doesn't have to be from inappropriate relationships. How do you protect the church from false teaching and bad theology slipping in? You know, we don't have to follow the news months before you hear about financial scandals within the context of a church. Either somebody using church connections to raise money for some nefarious scheme or somebody in the church leadership absconding with funds. How do you protect the church? from financial scandals? How do you protect the church from power struggles between leaders that can split a church? There's a lot of hazards that churches can face, and there was a particular hazard that the church in Ephesus was facing when Paul wrote to Timothy. Paul left Timothy in charge or as his emissary to kind of take charge of the situation, try to prevent things from getting worse, try to clean them up. But as Paul advises Timothy, how to protect that church. We can learn about how to protect churches today. Turn with me then to 1 Timothy chapter 1, because we'll spend most of our time, all of our time this morning, together in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's 1 Timothy chapters 1 to 5. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We see the first problem coming out in the church of Ephesus, so the first problem was a false teaching. We see that in chapter 1, verse 3. Paul tells Timothy... Stay in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. This early church was a time of great foment. There was a, they had the Old Testament was their Bible. 
They had stories about Jesus that were circulating, but the Gospels may have been written by this point, but weren't earlier in the process. Timothy, First Timothy is rather late, written rather late in the, in the New Testament. So it's one of the later books of the New Testament. So maybe they had the Gospels already, were beginning to circulate. They had stories about Jesus. They had Paul's preaching. A given church might have one of Paul's letters, but they didn't have the New Testament. What they had was a lot of traveling teachers coming through. It was a common phenomenon in the ancient world of traveling teachers. And, and the traveling teachers went from society where they used to teach philosophy. And they moved into the church where they would teach about Jesus as they come through. And so many of them come through with different ideas. And they've come through here in Ephesus with certain false doctrines involving myths and endless genealogies, probably reflections on the Old Testament and elaborations of the genealogies in the Old Testament. And Paul warns, such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. How, how can Timothy protect the church from false theology? Notice the anecdote, antidote that Paul gives in verses 10 and 11. He encourages Timothy to preach and teach what conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God. He offers Timothy a single antidote to this heresy, and that is the gospel that he's been preaching. Now, for us, the antidote is clearer, more explicit, fuller, because we have the entire New Testament now. But this is the antidote. The gospel about Jesus Christ, as taught in the New Testament, as endorsed by the church throughout its history, any new teaching that comes in, we need to evaluate it by the gospel of Jesus, by the teaching of the New Testament, by the doctrines that the church has always taught throughout its history. And this was an important issue when the Protestant Reformation, when churches like ours first started in the 1500s and the 1600s. This is a really important thing because the reformers, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, they said they were bringing back an important doctrine that had been lost. The whole doctrine of justification. The whole notion that Jesus died for our sins to give us forgiveness before God. You see, they said they were bringing it back, which was so important. And they went back through church history to see if they could find it. They went back to the New Testament to find evidence for it. Because no new doctrine can be allowed. Doctrines can be rediscovered. But we don't want to endorse any new doctrine that we don't find. Let's switch over. We okay to switch over to the other mic? Okay. We don't want to allow any new doctrines that have been devised more recently. They all have to be evaluated by the gospel, by Jesus, by the New Testament, by the historic teaching of the church. Consider in the 1800s, the 1800s was a, in America was a time of great uh, theological foment. A lot of the cults or irregular religions that we see today started in the 1800s. Uh, now, often by adding to scripture, the Seventh-day Adventists add to Scripture. Christian science more or less ignores Scripture. Mormonism adds to Scripture. 
And instead of critiquing this by the gospel of Jesus, by the teaching of the New Testament, by the historical doctrines of the church, they will emphasize a new idea. How do we protect, how do we protect the church? By going back to the gospel, by going back to the New Testament. Joseph Smith's mother was a Presbyterian. And she decided at one point, I don't need a pastor to tell me what to believe. I can read the Bible and decide what to believe for myself. The first step to heresy is independent interpretation. We go back to the gospel. We go back to the New Testament. We go back to the historic teachings of the church, what all Christians have believed in all places. Uh, new movements have come and gone. Uh, a more recent movement was in the emergent church or the emerging church, some elements of which said, look, we've overemphasized the atoning death of Jesus. We need to downplay that because that's offensive. When new doctrines come in, we go back to Scripture. We go back to the Gospel. We go back to the New Testament. We go back to church history and say, has this been taught by all Christians in all places? Is this substantiated by the New Testament? We don't accept new teaching. We've had church members who've been gone off to college or gone to other places to work and have been influenced by cults. How do we protect people from cults? We go back to the gospel. We go back to the New Testament. We go back to the historic doctrines of the church. If anyone comes to you with some brilliant new insight, some spectacular new experience that you should have, always ask, what's the evidence for it? In the gospel of Jesus, what's the evidence for it in the New Testament? What's the evidence for it in church history? Now, we may be a bit safer from theological aberration in our generation than groups were in the 1800s. You don't see as many new doctrines coming up. Because we're not so concerned about doctrine anymore. Maybe we go to the other extreme and we're more concerned about emotion. We're more concerned about our emotional well-being. We're more concerned about emotional experiences. We're more concerned about being happy than wrestling with Scripture. Again, our protection is the same. This church has a long tradition of Bible exposition, a tradition that preceded me and a tradition that I hope will f succeed me. Because it's only consistent exposition of the Bible that tells us what God cares about and what he thinks about those things he cares about. If we leave it up to pastors or committees or church members to decide, oh, I'd like to hear a sermon about this topic or that topic, quickly we get out of balance and focus on topics that interest us, that are conducive to what we want to hear, and we lose track of it. The first protection for any church is the gospel and is scripture. Then Paul continues on with a second problem they face in chapter 2. Now, this is related to the first. Because notice in chapter 1, verse 7, he says, about these people who teach these endless genealogies and these myths, this new teaching, he says, they want to be teachers of the law in verse 7 but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. They want to be teachers of the law. They want to be teachers, law here means Torah, means the first five books of the Old Testament. They want to be teachers of the Bible. 
but they don't understand what they're talking about. They want to be teachers of the law. Now, one of the reasons that Paul opposed this doctrine was they were promoting Jewish speculation. And the problem is, you've got to follow this closely to understand the contemporary application. The, the, the problem is, by promoting Jewish speculation, speculation based on obscurities in the Old Testament text, by promoting Jewish speculation, what they were doing was excluding all the Gentiles. Not only were they heretical in their teaching, they were provincial or ethnocentric. Because they were teaching elaborate ideas that had appealed to people who had obscure knowledge of the Old Testament. It had appealed to Jews, but it would exclude the Gentiles. So Paul's basic point is the first thing that protects the church is the gospel, the Bible. The second thing that protects the church from false teaching and false emphases is the mission that God has given us. Notice how this comes out in chapter 2. In contrast to these people who want to be teachers of the Jewish law, Paul says. God calls us, chapter 2, verse 1, to pray for all people. Chapter 2, verse 4, God wants all people to be saved. Chapter 2, verse 6, Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people. Chapter 2, verse 7, Paul was appointed a herald and an apostle and a true faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Paul is warning his church, like he would warn us, against ethnocentrism, against provincialism, against racism. Anything we do that makes the gospel narrower than the whole world, if it makes the gospel about Judaism and makes the gospel palatable to Jews, if it makes the gospel palatable to Asians and especially suitable for Asians, if it makes the gospel suitable and palatable to any subgroup, Paul warns, this is not the mission of God. The mission of God is for all people. We pray for all people. God wants all people to be saved. He gave himself, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people. Paul himself was appointed a herald to a teacher of the Gentiles, not the Jews. The gospel is not just for Jews. It's not just for any other ethnic group. It's not just for Anglo-Americans. It's not just for people like us. Now, we want to be careful with the application of this point. Because this doesn't say, this does not mean we can't have a Chinese church. It's perfectly legitimate to have a Mandarin-speaking church and a Mandarin-speaking congregation. People need to hear the gospel in the language they speak. And none of the countries I've ever lived in do people like to hear interpretation. Some people will suffer through it. Some people will get up and leave. Nobody wants to hear the same sermon twice, one in a language you don't understand, once in a language you do. It's great to have a Mandarin-speaking congregation. It becomes a question for us, as an English-speaking congregation, about what our identity and our goal and our target audience, who we are. And if it ever turns out that the way we do things or the 
people we prefer, the people we welcome, the people we hang out with, if it ever turns out that this becomes ethnically compressed, then we're violating the gospel. And we're violating Paul's exhortations in chapter 2. Because we're to pray for all people. God wants all people to be saved. Jesus Christ made himself a ransom for all people. Paul is a faithful and true teacher, not just of Jews, but of Gentiles. So we're considering as a congregation, we're considering how can we communicate to people who aren't Asian that we are actually interested in them. Does our name as a church impede that? Our language doesn't impede it, but does our name impede it? Does our identity impede it? What can we do to show the world that we're interested in all people, in all places? This exhortation from Paul also does not forbid us to prioritize Chinese in mission. It would be silly if we did not prioritize China in mission. Not silly from our perspective, but silly from the perspective of the Chinese government. Really, there's three kinds of people that exist in the world in the perspective of the Chinese government. Chinese who live in China, Chinese who live in the diaspora, and everybody else. And they treat those three groups of people differently. So if China is willing to give a, a wider open door to the gospel to people who are ethnically Chinese, by all means, we walk through it. You know, maybe some of our missionaries will go to India or the Arab world, but they won't have as wide a door open. We should expect that more of our people will be welcomed more warmly in China than elsewhere. We should take advantage of those avenues. Paul doesn't prohibit that. We have a natural opportunity there. Although it's positive that we see that our most recent couples going to China vocationally are going to its minorities because the gospel among the Han Chinese may be self-sustaining now. It may be strong enough that it can sustain itself, but not among the minorities. So it's great when we can use our ethnicity to get into the country and then use Paul's teaching to go beyond reaching the Han Chinese to the minorities. Now, there are four more dangers and four more protections that are offered in this text. I'm going to stop with one more because we have some other important things to do this morning. Take a look at chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. Because this is really controversial. I'll stop here after this point. If you want to know more, I don't know, email me. I don't know. Notice what the Apostle Paul says here. Chapter 2, verse 8. I want the men in all the churches to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and disputing. Now, men, don't get upset because the Apostle Paul thinks you're pugilistic, that you're short-tempered, that you might hit each other. Okay? You might punch each other out. Don't get upset, Paul. He just warns you, don't punch each other out. Okay? So women, don't get upset with Paul with what he's about to say. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. And then he goes on for seven more verses about the women and what they can't do. And a lot of people say, whoa. One verse about misbehaving men. 
and eight or nine verses, whatever, about misbehaving women. Well, there's a cultural reason for it and the time. There was a major transition occurring between predominantly Greek culture, where women were more or less housebound, to predominantly urban Roman culture, where women were, the doors were being thrown open for women. In this transition period between housebound and outward focus, public life, there was a lot of chaos occurring. And that, a lot of that chaos was coming also into the church. And Paul talks an awful lot, several times he references old wives' tales, etc. in this letter. Clearly the heresy was making inroads among the women who were feeling their new stature and expressing themselves. So Paul clamps down both on the men and on the women. But presumably more on the women in this case just because they were a bigger part of the problem at the time. But the solution to this, chapter 2, verse 2, let it be our goal, he says, to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Let it be our goal to live peaceful and quiet lives. In a time of social revolution, the church tends to be, historically, tends to be conservative. And Paul is encouraging a conservative response to social upheaval. Paul's goal is to spread the gospel. The gospel generally spreads most easily when things are calm, not when there's riots going on. Paul's saying, let's live peaceably, let's live quietly, let's live holy lives, let's be godly, so that the gospel can proceed from us to the others around us. The New Testament is largely cautious, conservative document. Partly, that was because of their historic circumstances. They were a tiny group of people, 60 or 80, maybe 100 in a city. Often in, in one house church, a house big enough, maybe 30, 40 people, maybe multiple house churches, but they were a small minority, a threatened minority, facing persecution. We can be a lot more adventurous than the New Testament believers could be because we're a large block. We shouldn't be a voting block geared toward one wing of the political spectrum, but we can engage more politically than they could. But still the point remains true. The church should not be a place of social agitation. The church should be a place of peaceful, quiet, reflective living, pursuing godliness and holiness. Just a couple of examples. If you followed uh, the news, you know, you realize that this is the 27th anniversary of the Tiananmen incident or massacre, depending on your perspective. The churches in Hong Kong are kind of split, or the uh, freedom movement in Hong Kong is kind of split about how aggressively to celebrate this. It's not a surprise that churches would take a different stance, that some would be more conservative, as Paul was in his circumstance, because the, the hazards are real. But you could argue that we could be more participative in our culture, even in Hong Kong, because the freedoms are also real. We may differ on how strongly to commemorate, how strongly to participate in social movements, but the basic proposition should still be the same, is that really what we're aiming for 
is to live peaceful, quiet lives, pursuing godliness and holiness, not for the church to become a place of political unrest and and social chaos. We can look back to the 19th century and see that the evangelical church was right to be involved in emancipation because the Bible has strong statements about slavery. We can look back with shame to the 20th century when the conservative church was reluctant to be involved in civil rights issues, despite the biblical teaching. So we acknowledge that because of its circumstances, the New Testament had to be very cautious. Because of our values, we still seek to be mildly cautious, but we may have more latitude than they have. And this applies even more clearly to the gender issues and gender identity issues. Basically, in short, there will be many challenges that face the church and threaten its existence. Paul comes back to address them in 1 Timothy, and he reminds the people the centrality of the gospel, the centrality of our mission, the centrality of the calling that God has given us in his sovereignty over the world. Paul writes to Timothy in a summary statement that captures it all. I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, You will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. The whole book presupposes this, that it's not our house, it's God's. It's not our household to live as we want. It's God's household, and he calls us to worship him and serve him above all. Let's pray together. Father, in the social issues which confront us, we ask that you would give us wisdom to walk in a way which preserves the gospel, but which also uses the freedoms that are legitimately available to us. Help us to be your light, both inside the church and outside. In Jesus' name, amen.